I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 8. Mark 8. As you know, we have been plumbing the depths of Mark chapter 8, verses 34, all the way to chapter 9, verse 1, with the title of the message, What Will You Give in Exchange for Your Soul? In Mark 8:34, the Bible says, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. I told you last time that this passage has an easy three-point outline. Verse 34, which we covered last Sunday, speaks to us of the command of Christ for discipleship. The command of Christ for discipleship. And then in verses 35, 36, and 37, we see, secondly, the comparison of the salvation of a soul versus the pursuing of the riches of the world. And then lastly, in verse 38 and chapter 9, verse 1, we have the coming of Christ and the choice of the ages. The coming of Christ and the choice of the ages. I told you last time that verse 34 gives us three very clear and imperatival commands of our Lord. He says this to anyone who would be a follower of himself. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must do three things. One, he must deny himself. Secondly, he must take up his cross. And thirdly, he must follow Christ. In other words, if someone is to be saved, a disciple of Christ, a follower of Jesus, a Christian, not a second level of discipleship after someone is already converted to Christ, but the very definition of what it means to be in Christ. Someone who denies themselves. Someone who takes up their cross. In other words, someone who is willing to die, maybe through very intense persecution, or at the very least, spiritually, a dying to ourself. And then thirdly, a conscious and continuous desire and reality of following Christ in his steps, listening to his word, following his will. Jesus gives those as commands 
for anyone wishing to be his disciple. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verses 35 to 37 to speak of comparisons. And Jesus loves to do this in his teaching. He loves to compare one thing as over against another. And what he says in these three brief verses is that if you really want to save your life, you must be willing to compare the saving of that life versus what you are willing to do to save your own life by what you are pursuing, what you spend your time on, what loves you have. And when he asks us to compare what loves we have in and of ourselves, those all pale in comparison to the love that we should have for him and his gospel. When you really think of the comparison of the salvation of a soul and comparing that to the love of the riches of this world, Jesus, in essence, is saying that's no comparison at all. That is no comparison at all. What he does is he gives three statements, one in verse 35, one in verse 36, and one in verse 37. And I've principalized those for you, and they are these. Number one, verse 35, in comparing the salvation of a soul versus the riches of the world, the principle is this, the only way to save your life, Jesus says, is to lose it. The only way to save your life is actually to lose it. He says very plainly, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, as I've said to you a number of times as we have plumbed the depths of this passage through two previous messages, that this statement of Christ is a real enigma, or at least it so seems to us. Because if in our Western mind we ask ourselves the question, how do I save my life? How do I gain my life? The very obvious answer is, if not in theory, in practice, by whatever I can amass for my life. That's so very true in our culture. Anybody who wishes to gain something does everything he can to pursue all of the riches that they believe will give them the amassing of that which they want. For instance, you've seen that bumper sticker on the cars. It's on so many I don't so see so many here in Arkansas as I did in California, but that little bumper sticker reads, the man or the one with the most toys, what? Wins. You must have seen it. And that is the culture of our day. The man, the woman, the person who has the most toys in this life, the one who can amass all of the goodies, can save his life. He can be the one in charge. He can be the man on the top of the mountain. He can be the master of his own destiny. He can be the captain of his own ship. Jesus says, truly, truly, it is the exact opposite of that. 
the one who is standing at the end, the one for whom Jesus Christ himself is not ashamed, is the one who has actually lost his life. And that is where the real enigma comes in. Wait a minute. How can I save my life by losing it? How can I ever attempt to gain something by giving myself away? Well, it is true. And I often hear in Christian circles, we know what the world would say, but in Christian circles, we hear what may be hinting at this, but in reality is the exact opposite. It's really just the aping so much of the world. You say, how so? Well, you hear someone give a testimony, and their testimony might be something like this. Well, listen, here's what I did in order to gain Christ. I gave up all of this money. I gave up all of these cars. I gave up all of these relationships. I gave up everything in the pursuit of Christ. And often when you hear these testimonies, you're actually seeing and hearing maybe someone who's talking more about what they gave up than receiving Christ. Is that not so? Often you hear a testimony and I end up saying, I wonder if the glory was being attributed to what they gave up versus what they received. Was it Christ that they were pursuing or just the sake of having people affirm the tremendous sacrifice that they made in giving up whatever it is they gave up? I was really, really impacted by this very principle when in pastoring in California, I began to read in the newspapers of a young Jewish whiz kid by the name of Barry Minko. You may have remembered reading about him several years ago. He was a young entrepreneur. He was really in his teens at that time, and he began to clean carpets and uh, clean office buildings as a very young Jewish entrepreneur. And he started a company called Z-Best Carpets. And I remember reading about this whiz kid, Barry Minko, and all of these, these tremendous accomplishments of his life, and he was just articulate and bold, and he began this company, and apparently it took off to the point where it was so successful that he sold the, the company on the market, as they say, and amassed millions. And then he started more companies. And the California crowd, at least those who were into such things, were just amazed at this young lad and all that he was able to do until, of course, it began to be clear to his investors that he was bilking them out of money. In fact, what he would do is this. He would find a high-rise building somewhere that was under construction, not even built, not even inhabited by anyone, and he would give the address of such a building to his investors and say, I have a cleaning crew who's cleaning all of the carpets and all of the offices of this building, and we're doing all kinds of cleanup, and we need this kind of money for the investing so that you will see a return on your profit and you will see a tremendous return and these people have their building cleaned and all of my workers will have their money and everything will turn out well. And so he had people giving him money, investing in all of these operations and new businesses for buildings that had not yet been fully constructed. And of course it caught up with him. And he was put on trial and convicted of bilking people out of millions of dollars, investors and others, and he landed himself in prison. 
and I remember he called one day to Grace Community Church. And he said, I have just come to Christ. And I said, a young Jewish boy like you come to Christ? Yes. And I'm wondering if John MacArthur can come and do a Bible study here because I've led several other of these inmates who are near me to Christ and we've started a Bible study and I want to know if you'll come. So we began to talk through the implications of that and lo and behold, after a few short months, I found out that Barry Minko had contacted some Christian publishers and had sold his rights to his life story and they were already producing a book. Thomas Nelson Publishers published that book. And it was the story of this tremendous testimony of this young man who had built millions of of dollars from people and how he'd been converted to Christ and how he had pursued a doctor of theology degree while still in prison and while he was leading all of these prisoners to Christ and he was set to be released after a short time and then he was going to go on the road and I remember receiving a letter from him saying I'm ready to speak now my testimony at Grace Community Church. And you know I thought to myself first of all he's had very precious little time to be discipled in the faith. And secondly, all I kept hearing, and when I read the book, all I kept reading was I heard a whole lot about what Barry Minko was willing to give up, and I didn't hear a lot about that Christ to whom is the pearl of great price and the treasure hidden in the field, and someone selling all that they have to gain that treasure. I didn't hear a lot about that. And I thought to myself, you know, if I ever re-articulate my testimony to someone, I need to make sure that I don't talk about all the things that I've been willing to give up versus that which I have gained. The glory belongs to God alone. And it frankly matters little what I gave up. And the truth were known, I gave up nothing. I mean, there is nothing in this world that compares with the surpassing value of gaining Jesus Christ. In fact, I, I, was, I was really impacted by the reading of the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones by Ian Murray, tremendous biographer, tremendous life of a man, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I remember reading this very thing. Ian Murray says, references to himself, to Lloyd-Jones in his sermons, and if you don't know Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a famous preacher of yesteryear in England. He died in 1981, has a tremendous impact even continuing today through his books and commentaries. References to himself and his sermons were brief and rare, which of course is a very different thing in our day. Anything in the way of a testimony to his conversion experience was almost wholly absent. The omission was not an oversight on his part, but was the resu result of deep convictions. For one thing, he noticed that the giving of testimonies tended to reduce all conversions to a similar pattern to standardize experience in a way which, which went beyond Scripture. And yet, at the same time, testimony givers were prone to emphasize what made their story noteworthy. No doubt the motives were often well-intentioned, but the effect could easily be carnal and man-centered. Hearers readily became impressed with the dramatic and unique features of a story instead of with the grace of God, which is identical in every conversion. In his own case, as the newspapers reporting his change of career had found, you say, what change of career was it? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones in the early 1920s 
was a very accomplished medical doctor. In fact, so accomplished, and so accomplished at such a young age that he was asked to be the assistant physician to the physician to the queen, Lord Horder. He was the number two man behind the leading physician of the land, London, England, to the physician to the very queen herself. And he had thrown all of that away and counted it as nothing when he believed God had called him to preach the gospel full time. And yet the newspapers were aghast at such a move. They couldn't believe that this man, with all the preeminence that he had and with all the future that awaited him, that he would give up his medical practice, all of the training, all of the years, for the sake of throwing it all away in their mindset for the sake of pastoring a local church. In his own case, Ian Murray says, as the newspapers reporting his change of career had found, it was easy to emphasize the unusual and to speak of the great sacrifice he had made in leaving medicine. But he disliked such language intensely. To speak of any loss in the context of being a Christian amounted in his eyes to a denial of the gospel. Further, his view of preaching was such that to talk of sacrifice in relation to that work was virtually absurd. There could be no higher privilege than that of being a messenger of the God who has pledged his help and presence to those whom he sends. When, as happened at times, people referred in admiring terms to his self-denial in entering the ministry, he repudiated the intended compliment completely. This is what he said, I gave up nothing. I received everything. I count it the highest honor that God can confer on any man to call him to be a herald of the gospel. In other words, Lloyd-Jones was saying, look, when you compare this, this medical training, this medical practice, the untold wealth that might be attached to something like that, all of the fame, all of the recognition, all that the world might be able to say, you are a physician to the Queen of England. You've risen to the prominence of your profession. And he replies, I gave up nothing. You see, because he knew the comparison paled when compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, his Lord. In fact, he says earlier in this book, which is, so very poignant, an illustration that brought him so close to this call to ministry. He says, I was really struggling with this idea, not struggling in the sense that I was weighing the two, but I was struggling the when and the where and how I should communicate all of this so as to be clear and distinct in what I would say. Involved in this struggle, he says, I literally lost over 20 pounds in weight. And there were several incidents in which led him to this place, experiences through which he now had to pass and were to bring home to him yet more powerfully the emptiness of the world's glamour. One night, Martin recalled, he and his friends were going to a theater in Leicester Square and they persuaded me to go with him, he says. I have no idea what the play was about at all, but they were very excited about it. What I remember is this, as we came out of the theater to the blare and glare of Leicester Square, suddenly a Salvation Army band came along playing some hymn tunes, and I knew that these were my people. 
I never have forgotten that he says. There is a theme in Wagner's opera, Tannhauser, the two poles, the pole of the world and the chorus of the pilgrims and the contrast between the two. I have very often thought of it. I know exactly what it means. I suppose I had enjoyed the play. When I heard this band and the hymns, I said, these are my people. These are the people I belong to, and I'm going to belong to them. Can you imagine the contrast? He's there in his impressive suit, and he's there sitting around people with impressive clothing. They're there at an opera in the center city of London, and they see all of the regalia, all of the money, all of the power, all of the prestige. And from a distance, he can hear a discordant tune from a ragtag band of Salvation Army people, and he looks at the contrast and he says, those, those are my people not these. These are the people that I belong with, and when I belong with these people, then and only then can I rightly reach out to these people. And even the account of how he was pulled into this even more came from Lord Horder himself. Once more in this connection, his closeness to Horder was a proof of a help. Although the last thing which Sir Thomas intended was to assist Lloyd-Jones spiritually, his actions unintentionally served that end. As Lloyd-Jones explains, Horder was very kind to me. This is the physician to the queen. He would take me now and again to medical dinners where the top people were present, and I used to hear the mutterings, the criticisms, and the jealousies. It sickened me. What he saw of life at the top killed any ambition to get there. Dr. Lloyd-Jones found that as he worked alone in his research bench, he was often preaching to himself. The Bible itself had come alive and its arguments pursued him. If, as he believed, bodily suffering justifies care for people, what kind of concern is warranted for those who are shut out from the presence of God? However much sickness can be alleviated, men must still die and die deserving hell unless they can first be reconciled to God through Christ. He says in 1925, I used to be struck almost dumb sometimes in London at night when I stood watching the cars pack, passing, taking people to the theaters and other places with all of their talk and excitement as I suddenly realized that what all this meant was that these people were looking for peace and that he adds peace from themselves. You see, that's why people pursue all of these things. They pursue it because they believe it will bring them the peace. It, it will bring them, they believe, the happiness and the joy and the pleasures of this life so as to be on the mountaintop. And yet coming crashing through that mentality is Jesus Christ himself telling every would-be disciple, if you would desire to save your life, you must lose it. You must be willing to give it up. He says, secondly, verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now he penetrates even more deeply into the core of our existence. He says, secondly, the one who trades his soul for the world's riches actually gains nothing. He first asks the question, listen, who would want to save his life? The answer, the one who loses it. Secondly, if you were to gain the whole world, if you had everything that the world had to offer, you had absolutely no more desires, 
in essence, what have you gained? Nothing. Nothing. If you want to pursue in this world fame and riches and honor and power and prestige, or if you don't have any of that, but you want it desperately, what if you receive it? What if you receive it? What if it comes your way? What if it's a reality? What if it happens overnight or happens in stages? What about the 21-year-old who was driving by from work one day and decided to pick up the lotto ticket and now is millions richer? You know as well as I do that most of the people who you find out about who receive that kind of money in such a lump sum wreck their lives afterwards. And if they don't wreck it themselves, they have every cousin and aunt and uncle who they never knew before who would be willing to wreck it for them. So what if you gain all of that? Jesus says, in essence, you gain nothing. If you haven't been rich toward God, you've gained nothing. You see, that's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, on this very issue of the pursuing of the world's riches, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. And then this poignant statement, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying you must transcend your desire for earthly pleasure in order to cling to the only true gain, Christ himself. You see, he's not saying that all of those things may not be in and of themselves pleasurable. They certainly are. The pursuing of anything for which you could gain some measure of pleasure is pleasurable. There's no question about that. No one denies that. In fact, I even believe that what Jesus is doing here is he is recognizing, as no one else can, that within the heart of every man, within the soul of every person, because of our sin, is already an inordinate love for self. And so he's saying, listen, if anybody wishes to save their life, and everybody does, I mean, nobody is so foolish as to say, I don't care about myself at all. I hate myself. I loathe myself. Don't you buy it. No one believes that. You say, well, that's what psychologists tell us today. And that's true, and I've seen someone, or I am that person. No, you're not. If you are, you're at variance with the Word of God, because the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, no one hates themselves. No one hated his own body, but they love it, they nourish it, they care for it. We all love ourselves. The problem is we love ourselves to an inordinate degree. And Jesus is saying if you're wishing to save your life, if anybody's in the category of a motivation to save their life at all, which is every one of us, here's the way to do it. The problem is everybody who's attempting to love their life for the possibility of saving it are pursuing the wrong avenues for the saving of their own life. You see, that's the problem. Someone might say, hey, listen, if you want the proper motivation to save your life, then pursue money. It's going to give it to you. Pursue love. Pursue acceptance. Pursue the cheerleading squad. Uh, pursue the football team. Uh, pursue all of the cash that you can carry. Pursue all of the head knowledge that you can gain. Uh, have a Ph.D. in molecular biology and be hailed by everyone as the smartest man alive. 
problem with that is that all of those are damning avenues, damning lies, because they don't produce. It doesn't ultimately give you the salvation of your soul. That's the problem. None of those things mean the salvation of a soul. They may give you temporary pleasure in this life. They may give you temporary accolades in this existence, but they end here. That's it. You remember when Jesus castigated the Pharisees when they say, I do this and I do this and I pray and I give tithes and I give my money, etc., etc., and what does he say about them? Your reward is what? It's in full. It's in full. That's it. That's all you have. The accolades that you receive in this life for that which you're pursuing, that's it. That's it. That's all you have. It ends with this life. There's nothing beyond that in the reward category. You say, well, should I be pursuing a reward? I mean, are, are you saying that I should be pursuing the saving of my life? You better be. I better be. Listen, if there's any motivation at all to save your life or to save my life, it better be the motivation of saving it rightly. And what's the motivation for saving it rightly? Doing precisely what Jesus said. Lose it. Lose it. If it means losing the prestige, the power, the preeminence, if it means losing the money, the girls, the boys, if it means losing the job, the corporation, the business, if it means the education, if it means losing all of that, if that's what it means, if it's as clear as that to me, then I give up nothing for the sake of gaining everything. I alluded a moment ago to those passages in Matthew 13 that says, listen, if there's a treasure hid in a field, what does the man do if he perceives the prize? If he perceives that the treasure hid in the field is the most prized of all of the universe, what does he do? He sells all that he has to secure the treasure hid in the field. If the pearl of great price is there, what do I do? I sell all that I have. I give up everything for the sake of securing the pearl of great price. And what is it? It's Jesus Christ, His gospel, and the kingdom of God. That's what it is. That's the pearl. That's the treasure hidden in the field. And if I am unwilling to part with anything in this life, or if I say I want Christ, I want the gospel, I want the kingdom of God, I want entrance into it, but I'm unwilling to let go of this also. You cannot serve both. John Piper, who has done more, in my opinion, than anybody in our lifetime to attempt to make us see these comparisons, because often we're not talking about a comparison of Christ versus all of the trash of the world. I mean, that's no comparison at all. If someone said, uh, we're going to give you all of the worst things in the world or Christ, what would you choose? I mean, nobody's going to say that. But the problem is, in our life, it's saying no to the lesser gods versus the greater Christ. John Piper says this, The response of Jesus indicates that the way to think about self-denial is to deny yourself only a lesser good for a greater good. You deny yourself one mother in order to get a hundred mothers. In other words, Jesus warns us to think about sacrifice in a way that rules out all self-pity. That is, in fact, just what the texts on self-denial teach. And then he quotes Mark 8, the very passage we're studying. He says the argument is inescapably hedonistic. 
hedonistic in this sense. What pleasures are you pursuing? And if you're not pursuing the pleasure of knowing Jesus Christ, then it's a lesser, lesser pleasure and it ought to be abandoned. And then he quotes this tremendously insightful quote from St. Augustine. And he says this, does Augustine, If you love your soul, there is danger of its being destroyed. Therefore, you may not love it, since you do not want it to be destroyed, but in not wanting it to be destroyed, you love it. You say, what in the world did he just say? The very point I'm making. Listen, every one of us already inherently loves our soul. And when someone comes along and says, feed your soul with this, and this will give you the ultimate satisfaction, and I start feeding my soul all the stuff of this world, and it's pleasurable for a moment, my soul feels good about it. But the moment I'm confronted with the discipleship demand of Jesus Christ himself, the only way to receive this love of your soul that you're desiring is to love me more than these then I grab that because I'm motivated to see my life saved. And that's the key. I do love my soul and you love yours. And if you want your soul to be saved, then you must be willing to deny everything for the greater prize, Christ himself. Piper says, Jesus knew this motivation. It was the basis of his argument. He does not ask us to be indifferent to whether we are destroyed. On the contrary, he assumes that the very longing for true life will move us to deny ourselves all the lesser pleasures and comforts of life. If we were indifferent to the value of God's gift of life, we would dishonor it because it's God's gift. The gift of eternal life in God's presence is glorified if we are willing to hate our lives in this world in order to get it. The measure of your longing for life is the amount of comfort you are willing to give up to get it. What are you willing to give up? Are you willing to give up everything that someone, maybe even yourself, holds in this world as dear, dear to dear desire? Someone says, no, no, I'm not. And you know what? I've witnessed to someone who has looked at me in the eyes after many, many months, once a week, sharing this message. And the final statement, and I've never seen him again, are you willing to part with your sin to embrace Jesus Christ? He's the only one that can satisfy your soul. He's the one in whom any soul has ultimate satisfaction. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to part with these lesser gods, these lesser pleasures? And the answer was, no. No, I'm not. I hope and pray that someone else along the line is able to share the gospel and the word of God with someone like that who would say, what have I been doing? What have I been doing? I... I've been pursuing these things and they've been pleasurable for a season, but they're not pleasurable now because I see that as I exhaust the pursuit of them, it's a dry well. There's nothing on the other side of it. But I see now that you're right. Christ is the ultimate prize. Christ is the way for me in the losing of my life to save my soul for all eternity.
Listen, if you are willing to part with the passing pleasures of sin, if you are willing to compare even the good things of life to pursue, and if you reckon them as unworthy to be compared with the gaining of eternal life with Christ, then you have seen your life saved because you've been willing to lose it. Are you willing? As you sit there and as you evaluate your own soul, have you said that to yourself? Have you said, I'm willing to part with anything? for the sake of gaining the treasure hid in the field, the pearl of great price. If that's not enough, Jesus says in verse 37, the ultimate question, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What will you give, beloved? What would you be willing to give if you knew for sure that your soul would be eternally lost? Oh, that's a question, isn't it? Isn't that a tremendous question? What would you give if knowing that you gave it, your soul would be eternally lost? But what would you give? Or what would you be willing to give up in order for your soul to be eternally saved? That's the question of the ages. That's the question of all questions. That's why Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. You see, in this pursuit of the stuff of this world, I have not said that the pursuit of everything is wrong. That's not true. Paul says, if we have food and covering, we shall be content. It's the pursuing of those things that are right to pursue. But the problem is, we want to pursue things more than what we have. We don't want just the stuff that will meet my needs. I want more of the stuff. I want more of these desires, more of these lusts. And when I have it, I want more. It's like that man who built all those barns because he had all the stuff, but he needed to build bigger barns so he could amass more stuff. I mean, when was the time that he was going to say, enough, I have enough of this world? I don't need any more. I have all the money I want. It's that pursuit of the extra. I just want to go that extra mile. I just want to go to that extra step so I can amass this other stuff. And oh, when I receive it, there'll always be something more. Always something more. Paul says, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. As the saying goes, no man is so poor as the one who has only money. J.C. Ryle said of this text, Any man may lose his own soul. He cannot save it. Christ alone can do that. But he can lose it, and that in many different ways. He may murder it by loving sin and cleaving to the world. He may poison it by choosing a religion of lies and believing man-made superstitions. He may starve it by neglecting all means of grace and refusing to receive into his heart the gospel. Many are the ways that lead to the pit. Whatever way a man takes, he and he alone is accountable for it. Weak, corrupt, fallen, impotent as human nature is, man has a mighty power of destroying, ruining, and losing his own soul. The whole world cannot make up to a man the loss of his soul. 
The possession of all the treasures that the world contains would not compensate for eternal ruin. They would not satisfy us and make us happy while we had them. They could only be enjoined for a few years at best and must then be left forevermore. Of all unprofitable and foolish bargains that man can make, the worst is that of giving up his soul's salvation for the sake of this present world. Isn't it so true? And every one of us as evangelicals would say, yes, it's true. Pastor, amen to that. Then why are we pursuing it? Why are we plunging after it? See, that's the question of each heart. Is that what I'm doing? Is that what I'm pursuing? Is that where I'm headed? Jesus, right there at the crux of temptation, and Satan says to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. What does Jesus say? Go, Satan. For the Scripture says you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. The choice is so very clear. Look at verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You see the person who's made that choice? Someone who says, listen, I understand what you say, preacher, but I'm on the fast track. And I can't be concerned with this figure you keep talking about, Jesus Christ. I'm into the stuff. And I cannot be concerned about that. In fact, if you were to tell me that I had the choice between the London elite and a ragtag band of Salvation Army people, that's no choice. I'm ashamed of those kinds of people. Well, if you are, when Jesus comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels, He says He'll be ashamed of you. in the midst of an adulterous and sinful generation. But what about those? And what about those very disciples? What about a Peter, a James, and a John who would say, Lord, we've given up these things. We have been willing to follow you. What about us? What will be our future? What's the response to our Master and Lord? Jesus says, I'm going to say to you, a truth, and it is this, there are some of those who are not standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You say, what is he talking about there? Well, let me tell you, that is the hardest verse in Mark's gospel to interpret. And if you ask any self-respecting Markan scholar who's ever done anything in this book, they would say to you the same thing. So who am I to tell you what it really means? But I'll tell you what I think it means. I think it means what verse 2 of chapter 9 implies that it means. Six days later. Do you see that chronological link? 
He just said what he said, and then Mark adds, six days later, as though Mark was interpreting it for us, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Folks, I don't know that I could paint a picture that would be more glorious of the kingdom of the power of Jesus Christ and his holy fathers and the holy angels but this transfiguration. If no launderer on earth can whiten the white of what they experience, this has to be at least the initial step of the kingdom of God coming in power. It may even include the Acts 2 preaching at Pentecost where thousands were converted and Peter was there. He didn't taste death until he was the one used by God to preach this message and thousands came to Christ. And it certainly includes the second coming glory of Jesus Christ, and it certainly includes the resurrection of those who will be with Christ, and it must certainly include the eternal state where we will all dwell with Christ forever and ever and ever. It must include all of that, but it must start somewhere, and I think it starts with the transfiguration. In fact, Peter's so blown away, blown away by it, he says in verse 5, he said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. We're on holy ground. Let's make a tabernacle here so we can worship forever and ever and ever. Glory has come. This is it, folks. They became terrified. Cloud formed overshadowing them and a voice came out of the cloud this is my beloved son listen to him you talk about the kingdom of God coming with power God the Father speaking in a cloud Jesus Christ with his flesh peeled away and his transfigured glory emanating from his body Peter James and John human beings sinful at best standing there with Elijah and Moses. My goodness, what a tremendous picture. I think we're getting close to what it means the kingdom is coming with power. You see, why does it end this way? Why does this passage end this way? Why does Mark include this kind of detail? Listen, he's saying this. You're either going to be ashamed of Jesus Christ, for which he's going to say to his father, I'll be ashamed of you, or you're going to be one of those who are not ashamed of Christ, and he's going to provide for you a kingdom glory that has no equal. You want to be in that group? Or do you want to be in the ashamed group? That's the choice. What choice do you make? The ashamed group or the glorified group? John Piper ends our message by saying, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. No one sins out of duty. We sin because it holds out some promise of happiness. That promise enslaves us until we believe that God is to be more desired than life itself. 
all that God promises to be for us in Jesus stands over against what sin promises to be for us without Him. Here's the choice. Is the choice the great prize of Jesus Christ, all that He is, all that He has done, and all that He will yet do in the transforming power of the kingdom of God when it comes in glory? Or am I willing to be seduced, lied to, deceived by sin, by Satan, by the world, into thinking that whatever they're holding out for me is more to be desired than God Himself? And believe me, they'll do it, and you know they'll do it. You and I fight every day with that allurement, and it says, touch me, taste me, come to me, believe in me, accept me, want me. And it is so alluring that you and I think that that promise that's held out there for happiness is more to be desired than the promises of this book. And so we grab a hold of it, and we take it, and we taste it, and we put it on our minds, and we put it in our hearts, and we say, yes, it's true, it's the ultimate fulfillment. And that's when Satan has us. The bait and switch has just occurred. And as soon as that little morsel is gone from the hook, all I have is the hook itself. And the hook hurts. It hurts. There's no way out. I've been strung up. I've been lied to and deceived. And I realize God was right. God was right all along. And I wasn't. I thought I could do it on my own. I thought I could say, this is the path. This is the way to control my destiny. This is the way to captain the ship. And the bait and switch came and I lost. In fact, I lost my whole soul. Make your choice. Make it today. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we know that you will one day come. You'll come in the glory of your Father with the holy angels. And it will be not in some transfigured state. It will be in full and blazing and effulging glory. And you tell us that you will separate the sheep from the goats. And you will say to those who are ashamed of you, I am now ashamed of you. And you will say to those who have been willing to give up all of the passing pleasures and folly of this world, Come now, my child, enter into the glory of your Lord. Lord, how could we be deceived for so long? How could we have fallen for the bait and switch? It really hasn't given us the happiness we pursued. It hasn't given us the pleasure that we thought, oh, it pleasurable for a time, but it seems so fleeting. Lord, I pray for everyone here, especially those 
who have never bowed their knee to Christ, those who've let the allurements of the world, the taste me, touch me, take me now kind of crowd, and have fallen for it. Oh, I pray that they would hear the truth today, respond to it, obey it, and walk in light of the true pleasure, the pearl of great price. And I pray for those who would say, yes, I, I've already apprehended this pearl. I've, I've already sold all that I have to gain the treasure. But I've allowed the world to suck me back little by little into its mold. And I want to say no to it. I pray for you, and I pray that you would continue, as I would, ask that question. Not only what am I giving in exchange for my soul, but what have, I, what have I given every day of my life for the cause of Christ? What am I giving now? Lord, make us those servants of yours who are saying yes to you and no to the world. Yes to you and no to ourselves. And if need be, taking up our cross and following you, even to death. Glorify yourself. Bring those to saving faith in Christ that you would have drawn to yourself from eternity past. Do it now. In Jesus' name, amen.